0: this week on Writers Inc. The the uncovering is the most fun, and the not knowing what's gonna happen next was the most fun. Even though there was a real learning curve for me in doing this book, because having not written a novel, I also had more fun than I've ever had writing anything, because I didn't know what was gonna happen next.
1: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets, What does it take to consistently top the best-seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Zach, are you uh, broadcasting from Ikea today? (laughs) I do wish people could see this, but not that it's that big of a deal. But JD's been giving me so much crap about how blank my walls are that I put some basically props behind me. (laughs) essentially (laughs) i moved a plant from downstairs up behind me and have like a little tv table with a picture of my daughter and a little succulent on it that's usually on my desk so
2: i I can still see the price tag on the picture frame like you forgot to take it off
1: (laughs) At
2: least, at least it's your daughter, and you didn't leave the picture that came with the frame in there.
1: The stock I photo love in when there. I people do that. Like that is the fun. That's I. I went to someone's house recently, and they still. I was like, oh, so who is this? They're like, I don't know. It's just the person who's on. the... I was like, you know, you're supposed to take that out and put your own picture in, right? Like, I always think that's funny when people do that stuff. But no, that's definitely my daughter. So, is that
2: a real plant? Yeah,
1: it's nice. all. Yeah, both of them are real. Yeah, Jay, Jay would to, know was that Jay would know. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I don't know. I know this one's a succulent. I don't know what this one is, but you know, um, but yeah, so they're real. I had to, you know, I had to up my plant game since you have such a good one going on.
2: (laughs) It, it is too bad nobody can see this because, you know, like we were just talking before we started recording, like at the start of COVID, nobody had a backdrop and like you saw all these talking heads on Zoom, you know, on the news channels and stuff, and they all had these blank walls behind them. And now it looks like these perfectly designed sets for everybody. Zach's room, he basically has the, the set up to about four feet or so like the, the, the bottom the bottom half is like spot on it's, it's perfect but then there's like nothing going on on, on the top so very similar to, to zach's hair situation i guess <laughs> dude,
1: you're on fire today you got, you
2: got that what, great beard you and then, eat
1: for breakfast Holy! Uh, been well, saving
2: it up we, we've got COVID over here again i guess that's that's probably it the, the medication is kicking in uh, yeah. Oh. The third time. Like, I didn't even think this was possible. I'm actually fine. But my, my sister came to visit um, and she was here last week with my niece and they were like sitting next to somebody on the plane who was coughing. So we figured that's probably where this this all started. Um, but my niece got um, like just kind of down and like felt sick, like about two, three days in. Um, and she tested positive when she got home. So she was like she sniffly. She didn't have a fever or anything, had a, a nasty headache. Um, then my sister tested positive. Then my daughter tested positive. My wife tested positive. So I've got my door locked at my office. And I'm just going to kind of go in and out through the window for like the next week and a half. Because I haven't tested positive yet for whatever this one is. And I don't really want to get it. Um, but like this is literally for my wife. It's the third time. Like we got it when COVID first started. Um, we got it again back in March. My daughter brought it home from the daycare at my wife's gym. Um, And this is the third one and we're vaccinated, you know, so (laughs) uh, yeah. It's
3: bizarre, man. I, uh, the running joke from NFT NYC was that everyone was airdropped to COVID NFT (laughs) because so so many people got COVID from, from the gathering and I came home and you might still hear it my voice. I'm still a little froggy, but I had like a congestion and a headache and I was a little bit feverish. I tested negative on the, on the, the instant test and I went and got a PCR test done and tested negative on that. So who knows, man, it just seems like so random anymore. Well,
2: the, the testing seems to be like hit or miss too. Cause my sister runs a hospital down in Florida. So she's got access to, you know, whatever they're giving everybody. When you go in someplace, um, she tested herself three times and the first two times she came back as negative, And the third time she came back as positive. Um, and, and that was only, she said she tested again the next day and it came back as negative. So she had two positive results in between there. So like she knew she had it. Um, you know, but it, like it, there was like maybe a 12 hour window where she tested positive out of the, you know, four or five days she actually felt bad. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all, it's all wonky. I I've, I've given up trying to figure it out. It's not going to kill me anymore, so I don't really care. Yeah,
3: it just seems like most of the media and stuff are just treating, like, they're pretty much ignoring it at this point. I mean, remember when COVID first came, there was, like, contact tracing, and you had to, like, call the people that you were near for the past five days. It's like, now it's like, oh, whatever, you're sick, it's
2: fine. Like, yeah, well, no, just, nobody nobody gave the message to my phone. I don't know if you guys have gotten these messages yet, but apparently your phone uses Bluetooth to figure out if you're near somebody else that has COVID like have you seen any of these like I, i've got oh, that's
3: not too creepy at all
2: no like it, it happened to me at thriller fest for the first time i basically got a little alert saying you've been in close contact with somebody who's tested positive for covid i'm like how the f does my phone even know who i'm talking to um yeah i've, I've given up trying to figure that one out too i figure that as long as you hold a phone in your hand or have an apple watch on they know what you're doing and when you're doing it and who you're doing it with so
1: they ain't gonna do that down here in tennessee covid ain't real <laughs> Oh, I feel man. like we need that that uh, that Robin Williams meme from Jumanji. What year is it? You know, <laughs> like, like we're talking 2020. So yeah. I have a bunch of tests if you need them because I moved. I was able to get a bunch from the government. They sent me 16 tests. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so dead serious. So I I've given some away. I'm like
3: you can uh, decorate your room with them.
1: <laughs> that's what I have up on the walls next week. All all these, uh, and I'll say thanks, Joe Biden.
2: <laughs> yeah, our tax dollars at work. Give them out at Halloween. You know, you could throw them in some of
1: those. <laughs> that's a great idea. Why
2: actually. not? <laughs> oh, man. Speak, speaking of Tennessee, here's the awkward transition. So I remember last week I mentioned the, the $60,000 Amazon order that my oh, wife yeah. placed. So we've got $10,000 worth of stuff that's missing so oh yeah because they, they shipped a lot of this stuff using you Hope know some of it was a picture frame no no picture <laughs> frame. they used um ups they used fedex they used u.s uh, postal service um about ten thousand dollars worth of stuff is coded as being delivered but not actually received um and it looks oh. like it came into USPS. Um, they received you know a ton of stuff, a bunch of big boxes. Nobody bothered to like look at it or lift it or anything like that. They basically just let it sit at the post office and and didn't notify anybody it was there. And then they returned it like three four days later. Um, because I, but like they somehow those things got coded as delivered. So my wife is on the phone, you know, screaming at everybody trying to prove that, you know, something didn't get delivered. And, and you know, like to put this in perspective, like she ordered, I think she said eight mattresses and like six of them or something showed up, um, you know, so that the Amazon driver, the delivery person has pictures of delivering mattresses. So there's no way to prove, you know, which two didn't show. Um so yeah that's a freaking nightmare um we were supposed to have bath fitters in there this week to, to redo the five bathrooms and they they sh- didn't show that. apparently somebody there got covid too so now they're trying to back catalog us or put us put us in um like i think they said two or three weeks out which isn't going to work because the property is supposed to go live next week so <sighs> yeah my, my wife is sick with covid and dealing with all this so we're, we're having having some fun over here wow that's exciting stuff man yeah <laughs> <laughs> nobody else cares other than I'm just me I'm right on my
1: mattress to show up I'm on my <laughs> you, you want to know something really bachelor I'm on my second air mattress and that one by the time I wake up in the morning like is almost completely <laughs> deflated <laughs> so I think it's time for me to actually get a bed <laughs> or or a treadmill or something. something. Oh, it's like was, an alarm that was, clock. That was low. I, I just got that. <laughs> Jesus. Sorry, man. Uh,
3: <laughs> I was thinking like, man, when you feel your ass hit the floor, you know it's time to get up. Like, all
1: right. Yeah, it doesn't just make the me want to get up. Long in the morning, I can tell you that much. So.
3: Oh, well, I better throw a little bit of publishing thing in here. Otherwise, we're, yeah, we're going to be so far off the rails.
1: Uh, I'm going to be on a treadmill desk next week. For
3: this <laughs> <episode>. <laughs> I just, I just want to mention that uh, the Carbon Almanac is publishing July 12th. And. Uh, in conjunction with that, we're going for a world, uh, a Guinness World Record on July 16th, which is a simultaneous book signing. So um, I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes. If you're going to be anywhere near Cleveland Heights and you want to come to Max Bax, I'm going to be doing a live signing there on July 16th. And you can become part of the world record signing. So uh,
2: looking forward to that. Is there anybody who isn't going to be near Cleveland Heights? like? <laughs> top top vacation destination in the in the world
3: Cleveland it is a uh, pretty popular in in the month of, of july yeah I'm i gonna... wish
1: that seth would have scheduled this during this podcast <laughs> so that you were just sitting there the whole time just like signing books <laughs> during the podcast <laughs> to everyone who came to your apartment oh
2: all right.
3: Anything, anything else, any other nonsense we
2: want to throw in here? Or we good to move forward. Uh, I'm just going to throw one other thing out there. So I started writing this book based on the outline that I wrote. I'm on chapter four, and chapter four is not on the outline. <laughs> So,
3: oh, that's that, that all right.
2: right. Yeah, I, I, I think it I, I don't think it's a sign of things to come. I mean, it, it oh. basically it was more of a pacing thing. And you know, I had to introduce some some characters that come later in the book. And I, you know, in the outline, they don't show up until like chapter 30 or chapter 40. And I just figured I you know, kind of seed them in there a little bit, a little bit sooner. And I I needed something like while I was writing, like it felt like something was missing from a pacing standpoint. So I'm trying not to ignore those kind of feelings as I'm going, because I, you know, my instincts on that kind of thing are usually pretty good. Um, so we'll see. It might it might be one of the chapters. It gets yanked later on but i've diverged from the outline slightly just enough to, to throw in a, a chapter
1: that doesn't all right me. i mean that no, happens me when neither. you have an outline just it happened a little earlier for you so yeah yeah
3: All right. Well, let's take care of some business and we'll get to our guest for the week. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our wonderful friends over there at Kobo Writing Life. You know, if you're taking your book wide, you've got to publish through Kobo. You keep all your rights, you get international uh, opportunities to sell, monthly promotions, and all of that without being exclusive to any retailer. Link in the show notes or head on over to KoboWritingLife.com.
2: J.D., who do we got on the show today? All right, this week we've got Barbara Graham. She's an award winning playwright and an author um, mainly for magazines. She's worked for Time Magazine, Oprah, um, which is O, oh, uh, Glamour, Moore, National Geographic, Vogue. Um, she's edited a, a New York Times bestseller before uh, called Eye of My Heart, but this is actually, she's out there with her, her debut novel, um, and it's called What Jonah Knew. It's a psychological thriller and releases July 5th. Uh, so here she is, Barbara Graham. who were you in a past life
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great question I haven't a clue except years and years ago when I was I don't know in my early 20s working in a a store in Philadelphia one of the women who worked there who was kind of very mystical told me she thought that I in a past life I'd been Nefertiti's daughter
3: go figure all right. See, I was going to say Cleopatra, but Nefertiti's pretty close.
0: I mean, who knows any of it, really? But um, and what always interests me is that when you hear about people who are um, talk about their past lives, they always seem to be somebody very famous. They're Napoleon. They're you know, who, you know, Joan of Arc, they're, they're never, you know, some average working stiff, but
1: (laughs) that's so true.
3: (laughs) Well, it's, it's not a crazy, I know the listener might be thinking that's a very strange question, but it's really not. Uh, You have a fantastic new book out, your debut novel called What
0: Jonah Knew. Uh, Tell us a little about the story. So the story is about two mothers and sons. Um, They're all strangers. And Um, Helen's son, Henry, has mysteriously disappeared and she's frantic to find him. Lucy's four-year-old son, Jonah, starts making weird comments about having another mom. He shows signs of PTSD and his mother is at a loss and desperate to try to figure out what's going on with her kid who has the most perfect family situation and there's no cause that she can tell for his distress eventually they take a place in upstate New York near where Helen lives and their paths over cross they overlap, and then you know all hell breaks loose and. um, Jonah knows things about Henry's disappearance that. Are really uncanny, and so the two mothers really set out to try to find the answers to this and and their quest becomes um pretty profound and at some point pretty perilous.
3: We certainly aren't going to spoil anything
0: no, I'm uh, trying not to give anything away <laughs> right right <laughs> am I right in
3: uh in saying that you you had this idea in New York I kind of did.
0: Yes, I did. It was sort of a confluence of really interesting things. I had been, I I was working then as a journalist. I'd also been a playwright which had been my only dip into fiction before, but so I was working as a journalist. I got an assignment to do a magazine article on past life regression therapy. And as part of it, I had a session with a past life uh, regression psychologist literally expecting nothing to happen telling the guy look i am absolutely you will be your biggest failure for hypnosis i am not suggestible p.s i i had this memory a terrible memory if that's what it was of being murdered during the holocaust which was really disturbing and unsettling and, but at the same time, I was a journalist and I didn't know what to make of it. Was this fantasy, where did this come from? A few weeks later, I met with my own therapist in New York, and he handed me this book by Ian Stevenson. And the book was about called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation about kids who have spontaneous recall of previous lives. That sort of blew me away. And around the same time, I was practicing um, mindfulness meditation, listening to a lot of Buddhist teachers talk. These, these guys talked like about past and future lives, like last Thanksgiving or next Christmas. So, and, and I also learned about ancestral family trauma around the same time that we carry traces in our DNA transmitted by RNA of trauma experienced by our ancestors going back at least three generations and there's really good science on this so all of these things kind of flooded into my head and I was walking down the street one day and I, I the story came to me as a download and I knew it had to be a thriller
3: that is fantastic i love those moments of, of inspiration
0: oh my god don't we live for them <laughs>
3: uh I, I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek said it's your debut novel i mean technically it's your debut novel but you're not new to writing uh mm-hmm. can you tell us about your your history with the craft
0: sure um i started writing as a kid poems plays i had my very first play produced when i was eight um, to an exclusive audience of mothers. I actually wrote, directed, and starred in the play. I wrote a lot of bad poetry as a teenager, as, as many teenagers do. And then I, I always wrote, I always needed to write. And so I became a playwright and had a bunch of plays produced in New York and in San Francisco where I'd lived and at other theaters around the country. And then, but I, and then I also was a working journalist because I did have to earn a living. So I spent years writing a lot about psychology and memory and trauma and all that kind of stuff. And, um, so this, my interest in this story was really not a natural one. And more than anything, I always wanted to write novels. I just didn't get there. Uh, I found plays a little bit frustrating. They're so, they're very different. Um, I, I kind of think of it as like writing music. In music, you score notes and for the instruments to play. In plays, you score dialogue for the actors, but then the actors, the director, the set designer, the lighting designers, do everything that in a novel the author does with description as well as dialogue, so it's a much more open form in a sense, and I love that because as an author you can go inside your characters' heads, whereas when you're writing plays, the the actors are doing that.
3: That is a brilliant analogy. I've never heard it put that way before. I mean, I'm thinking right now, as you were talking about the difference between scoring music and performing it and completely different things. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's really, that's really cool. Now, I I think I read in one of your interviews that you said uh, the the message that you thought came from the book was loss is the price we pay for love. Is that something you discovered in the process? Or was that something you sort of had as your, as your beacon or your guiding point?
0: No. When I had the download for the story, I knew the beginning and I knew the end, generally. I had no idea how I was going to get there. I had no idea that I was going to pull in really uh, the teachings from the Buddhist meditation that I'd been studying. And the the loss piece really is Um, a reflection of impermanence, which is one of the core teachings in the Buddhist traditions and really in most spiritual, you know, mystical traditions. So I didn't know, but it just kept going deeper and deeper. And I I didn't know that, I didn't know that the character who said that was going to be in the book. She showed up. Um, sort of the, the wise Zen mother-in-law. Wonderful.
3: Yeah, that's always something writers struggle with is, you know, do you, do you start with a theme or, or do you uncover one as you go? And it's I guess it's different for every project.
0: The, the uncovering is the most fun. And the not knowing what's going to happen next was the most fun. Even though there was a real learning curve for me in doing this book, because having not written a novel, I also had more fun than I've ever had writing anything, because I didn't know what was going to happen next, and when it does it's just these sort of magical moments like, oh, and and then sometimes you get stuck and I would go for walks or um, do crossword puzzles or play Wordle, now the Wordle kind of (laughs) took over, Um, but and just kind of wait for the characters to talk to me, to tell me what comes next, because literally there were times when I didn't know. I made outlines, endless outlines, and never really followed them. But um, the characters were smarter than I was. (laughs) Take us a little bit into your
3: process. Uh, How do you write, where do you write, a certain time of day, certain place?
0: Sure. Um, I, I have a study in our house uh, and where we live is very quiet. I need quiet when I'm writing. Um, I like to start early in the morning because I'm more awake at that point and have more energy. But I also, with, with the fiction, you just, I found I needed to just create an enormous amount of space around the writing not just when I was writing, I would go for walks, I would have snacks, I, I would have to get up and get away from it, so that, the, and that's how the next thing generally came. So, but it, it was almost like having a cushion of time in which to sort of ramble with it, be at my laptop for a, a period of time, then take a break but all within sort of this cushion trying my best and not to do email or social media or any of that stuff early in the day but but really allowing myself at least until around one to just live inside the book being inside the story
3: Mm. any any particular constraints that you put on yourself such as time or word count or page count
0: um no, not really. I I mean, n- not really. Uh, yeah. Um, it was it always felt good when I had, you know, a chunk that day. A couple of pages is great, more is great. Less is also good too, because there are moments when you're really just trying to find your way to the next place. And so some days that might be a couple paragraphs that you then throw out the next day.
3: I uh, I know somewhat uh, of the world of journalism and that those there are very hard and fast deadlines as opposed to a novel, which is very much open-ended. And you have a memoir, which to me kind of feels like it's kind of in the middle. Can you talk about Camp Paradox?
0: Sure. Um, that was... As with what Jonah knew, Camp Paradox was something I absolutely had to write. Um, It was the story of my being sexually abused by my camp counselor. When I was 14, my camp counselor was twice my age and I just really, I had no language for it for many, many years. And then eventually, I found the language for it, and really needed to tell that story for both my own sort of healing and really letting it go, as well as you know offering it up to others as an invitation to speak their own truth. I think telling the truth is a driver for me in in memoir, but but also in writing fiction. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote that I love, if I can get it right. Jessamine West, the the wonderful author, said something like, fiction um, allows freedom that reality obscures. Because you can go anywhere in fiction when you're writing memoir, which is also a gorgeous narrative form, you're confined by your own life experience.
3: Uh, can you explain what a non hallmark take on the complexities of being <laughs> a grandparent in the 21st century is?
0: Oh, yeah. So I became a, a grandmother, and um, I was going to write a memoir of my first year as a grandmother because I was, at the time, I was living in Washington, D.C. My son and daughter in law, just when she was about to have the baby, moved to D.C. to be near my husband and me. I was thrilled, this was so exciting. And then when my granddaughter was born, they decided really they hated D.C. They were gonna leave and go back to Paris, which is where they'd been living. And so I could not uh, write my first year as a grandmother memoir because they split, they broke my heart and they really screwed up my book idea at the same time. So what I did was I wrote a, a couple of pieces in there in the introduction, but I also invited other really well-known, smart authors who were grandmothers to tell their, to tell their stories. And the stories about grandparenting are really complicated. It's not like a Hallmark card. You are at the mercy of your adult children. And if you, you know, to make a misstep, they can prevent you from seeing the kids. It's very different when you're the mother of the son versus the mother of the the daughter. Um, daughters tend to rely more on their own mothers. You're even more of a fifth wheel when you're mother, the mother of the new father. So it's really complicated and there are some terrible stories of grandparents being prevented from seeing their grandkids, and there are beautiful stories. So I felt like no one is telling the real story. Mine was really one of heartbreak and having to come to terms with that when my son and daughter-in-law took off for Europe, and I felt like this baby was, you know, taken away from me, abducted, and, uh, and I didn't have a vote
3: wow that's powerful <laughs> stuff <laughs> are they still there
0: um I'm not even going there my son <laughs> now my son now lives in Italy yeah okay and okay. my daughter-in-law is back in the U.S. Okay. and it, complicated story yes yeah. so it, it continues to not be like Hallmark or a Lifetime movie yeah.
3: Uh, m- most of us probably don't have that experience, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things that struck me in, in the novel was the the degree and depth of characterization um, that was in it. The, for me, the characters really, I, I could, I, I felt them. Uh, did you have a, a specific approach to character building or design? Or is this, you know, what was, what, how do you do that?
0: Oh, that you know, that's one of the magical, mystical processes in writing. I mean, and why I loved writing the novel so much was that being able to really go inside the heads of all of these characters and their experiences and their conflicts and their take on the evolving situation. You know, it happened in the writing. And then it deepened in the revisions. And honestly, I now have the finished book, but I, I could keep going. <laughs> um, but really, it, I, I think for me, the process happened in the writing. I got to know them better. In the earlier drafts, they were much less complex. And then as I went through it, it just, they, they deepened and they knew more about themselves and I knew more about themselves as a result. Ah, Wonderful. Wonderful.
3: You mentioned earlier that the, the story you just kind of downloaded, it was instantly kind of there the beginning and the end, at least. Uh, that's a long way away from a debut first novel in traditional publishing. So <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit about how you ended up uh, getting an agent and then getting, you know, selling the manuscript and and that sort of part of it.
0: Sure. You know, I had this idea many, many years ago, but life intervened, other projects intervened. I took some stabs at starting it, putting, put it away, but it really possessed me. This story just possessed me. And I I just have to tell you this one thing. The whole time I was working on it, I had an old New Yorker cartoon on on my desk, and it's, it's a cartoon of a guy sitting there looking very glum in his underwear. He's the patient, and the doctor's looking very serious and stern, and the line is, I'm afraid that novel in you is going to have to come out. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And that's how it was for me with this novel. So uh, and I just kept working away at it. The pandemic was my friend in terms of I was in lockdown and there wasn't a whole lot else to do. So those that really gave me time to pull it together, draft after draft it's a little bit of an unusual, non-conventional thriller because of all the kind of, I guess, mystical pieces of it. And honestly, I would say a year and a half ago, I thought I might self-publish this book. I didn't know. I didn't care. And I just knew I had to finish it and make it the best book I could make it. And then toss it out there to the wind. And I sent it to an agent who immediately fell in love with it, very lucky, um, not someone I'd worked with before. And she called me up and said, I'm the agent for this book. Mm-hmm. So th- it w- that was wonderful. And she um, she sent it out. And the editor who had been the editor Uh, at HarperCollins on Eye of My Heart, the book about being a grandmother, instantly um, made an offer on it and bought it. So it was just kind of, and that was little over a year ago. So it's all happened really fast. I am so grateful. I know how lucky I am. It's tough out there. It's tough and competitive and all I would say to writers is write the book that only you can write, the story that you need to tell, and, and then it will find its rightful home, whatever that is. Wonderful advice. Uh, how did the book get into the hands of Amy Tan? Um, I know Amy. She's, oh, she's great. a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I know Amy. Not, nice. not everyone I, I got um, lovely blurbs from are friends, but Amy happens to be.
3: That's great. Yeah. I think I saw a picture of, of you two together at a workshop uh, right. at, at some point. So I kind yeah. of figured there was some prior relationship there.
0: Yeah. I mean, she's not my best friend, She's, but we kind of travel in the same circle of women writers and hang out in the Bay Area.
3: Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, Barbara, I think um, th- this has been a wonderful conversation. I'd love to to give you a very open-ended uh, softball question to finish it up, which sure. is,
0: um what are you most excited about right now you know getting the book in the hands of readers um is really thrilling to me and that process is just it's just happening and and hearing from readers um how they respond if it in some way touches them how you know when you write, as you well know, you're alone in your room doing your thing. You don't know how it will be received. You write what you gotta write. So this piece of it, being able to share it and, and share it with uh, some audiences, I'm, I'm doing a, a, a little bit of a book tour and doing a bunch of virtual stuff. So I'm really eager to hear questions from audiences and just get people's take because a book exists when there's someone to read it.
3: All right, I know that he died a few months after I was born, but um, that's a small technicality. I was definitely Jim Morrison in a previous life. I, I know <laughs> that for sure. So I don't know about you guys, Zach, how about you? Who were you in a previous life?
1: <laughs> Not Jim Morrison. No, um, I was Jim Morrison. Who, who else needs Jim a Morrison? treadmill? I don't know. I'm I'm gonna go Lance
2: Armstrong, John John Candy, maybe no.
1: Yeah, I was maybe I was. I'm not that young. (laughs) I remember John Candy, so I don't know. Yeah, that's good. Oh yeah, I guess
2: it it doesn't it doesn't work that way, right? Like if you (laughs) if you can't both be alive at the same time, I probably
1: wasn't somebody famous, which is what you guys talked about. Like everyone always says, like, oh, I was this person or that person. No, I was probably just you know some guy working on the, uh, the first like assembly line at Ford or something. So uh, that,
2: that's the part that always gets me. And I don't know if it's because you're, you know, you're paying somebody 20 bucks to tell you this sort of thing. And, but it, it is always somebody famous. Um, you know, they're not going to just say it's, you know, well, you, you were a guy named Joe Blow who, you know, lived in Missouri for six months or whatever, you know, like they're not going to just come up with some, some random person. Um, I, I do have a weird story for this and you know I, I kind of always have a weird story but of course um, yeah, my, my dad passed away in 2006 and I, I barely knew the guy like um, you know we just we never really sat down and had any real conversations until right before he died um, but he basically uh, about two three months before he passed away he sat down and he gave me like his, his life story um, and one of the weirdest things kind of came out of that like he grew up on a farm in Austria um, and he started describing the farm to me and, and I told him to stop and I, I grabbed a sheet of paper and I drew out the, the farmhouse. And what's weird is like I was able to basically recreate the floor plan of my dad's childhood home you know, that he left when he was like around 12 or 13 that I'd never seen before and to, you know, still to this day never saw. But he swore that the, like the drawing that I came up with was accurate um i've read a couple books that have suggested that memories can be passed down through genes um so i'm thinking that sooner or later you know we're going to stumble into the science that that actually proves something like that um i think that's why sometimes people can speak you know like foreign languages when they're hypnotized and and that kind of thing um but yeah jim morrison um yeah i'm not sure about that one
3: no no (laughs) uh no that inherited family trauma and and that was uh what was really a great premise uh for barbara's book it was a, a fascinating premise and i and i loved uh I love the way she unfolded that story. Uh, But there is some scientific evidence coming out around inherited family trauma. And, you know, it does kind of make sense, you know, like, because on there, there has to be on a physical level, there has to be some evidence of psychological trauma and to pass it, you know, genetically, isn't that much of a stretch in my opinion.
1: Yeah. I think it's really, I'd never heard that. And like, I've definitely, um, talked to people before about the past lives thing and all that stuff and um but you know that's not something i can really personally go along with but like when you talk about something about uh you know that has like science related to it that that really fascinated me and it definitely made me want to read more about it i I thought that was totally fascinating
2: yeah (laughs) awkward silence I guess jay's gonna have to come back with that edit button again um, i'm just i'm looking over my notes so like she had mentioned um i didn't know the character who said that she just showed up in the story while she was writing Um, that's obviously a a pantser thing, but it gets into the kind of like what I was talking about earlier. You know, like if if you're good at, you know, used to telling a story, if you understand that framework, you allow those kind of things to happen. Um, Even if you have the entire thing plotted out, or if you don't, you know, if a voice starts you know shouting to you from the side, you know, you you have to like learn to listen to that. Um, I know so many people that are, you know, they get out there to write their first novel, they'll write the outline for it. Then they try to stick to that outline and they just, they use it as a completely solid framework and they refuse to diverge from it. Um, And unfortunately I think some of the best writing comes from those divergences when you when you are willing to go off it and trust your subconscious a little bit
1: yeah something i, I thought a lot about this after listening to this interview i thought about uh you know previous conversations we've had around outline stuff because obviously i knew it was going to come up because she mentioned this but um you know I, I feel like a lot of my mindset around it, it you know like why i've been so stuck to have an outline is because you know, coming from kind of that indie mindset of like, you have to write and publish fast and stuff like that. And I just, it, to me, like, writing an outline just makes that process go faster. But there are certain books I have in my head right now. Like, I can think of one in particular that I really want to write <clears throat> that I absolutely would not want to outline and to me the difference is it's a book that i would definitely want to take more time with because i think if you're writing like one book a year or one book every year and a half or two years like doing that is much easier to just kind of pant your way along as she said like have the time to go out and take long walks when you need to think through a plot process or, or anything like that um but i think for me if like the, the idea in my head is definitely more literary and it's definitely more character driven Um, so story and i I know for a fact i would not want to outline it um so i definitely i say all that to say that i think that there's definitely a place um even if you are a a staunch outliner where you could go the other way and be like no i just want to like kind of figure the story out as i go and just discover it and let let the as a lot of writers will say who are pantsers, i want the characters just kind of lead me along the way i think there's totally a place for that
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, one of the other things that kind of surprised me is she said that she considered indie, indie publishing the title. Um, you know, this is somebody, you know, she's a journalist, you know, she edited a New York times bestseller. Um, you know, she's, she's in that world, you know, so for her to come out and say that that's, that's a pretty strong statement. And, and honestly, I think it's something, you know, somebody in her position probably wouldn't have said out loud, you know, like maybe five years ago. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it is becoming quickly like be, becoming a norm. It's, you know, the two, the two types of publishing paths are kind of on par with each other now. Um, where, you know, indie publishing was kind of the, the wicked stepchild before.
1: I, I want to ask you a question related when she was talking about that um, how common is it like she said that the I believe it was that book she was talking about that she an agent called her that she'd never worked with and was like this is my book I want to represent this like how common is that to happen
2: You know, it's, it's weird. Like that sort of thing happened to me, but like I was already established, you know, in, in, in the world, you know, when I went out there with that book, I knew a lot of the agents already. I had worked with some of them. I'm guessing that she's kind of in that same boat. Um, you know, because you don't, you don't edit a New York Times bestseller or somebody's book for, you know, a traditional publisher, um, unless you are in that world somehow. Um, so she probably had, you know, some friends that she reached out to that kind of thing. Um, but you know, like with fourth monkey, I mean, I had, I had 13 offers from, from agents on that book and you know, a lot of them kind of came out with, with things like that because they realized there was some competition there. Um, and, and it's nice to hear absolutely. But you, you know, you still, there's so many different factors there that you still have to, you know, go through, you have to make sure you're a good fit. With that agent make sure your personalities don't clash um you know double check their background um figure out what their track record is like who they represent what kind of deals they got you know you can't let the, the flattery get in the way of you know good business sense um, because you're, you're basically signing on the line with somebody that you may spend the rest of your professional life working with um so you don't want to you know make the wrong decision there
3: yeah i don't want to go too deep into this because it'll it'll sort of spoil the interview but i um i, t- I was talking to tess garrettson this morning for an episode we're going to air with her later this month. And this topic came up. And although she she hasn't self-published on her own, she completely put it out there as a possible option. And I had the same thought you did, JD. And like five years ago, I don't know if you'd have a very established, traditionally published author saying this, something like that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's becoming more and more common. And, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm on the board with ITW or I'm just getting to know a lot of the people in that world a little bit more, but I've gotten a lot of phone calls and emails over the last couple of years from very big name authors that um, are, are considering it. Um, and, and for most of them, it's mainly because they've got back catalog stuff that's coming back to them and they just don't know what to do with it. You know, 10, 15 years ago, it, you know, that back catalog, you know, the title would come back, their agent would repackage it, take it back out, and they'd resell it to, to somebody else. Um, but it's got, got a diminishing value to it when you do that you know you obviously got it in in their world they got a decent size advance when they first published it when those rights come back you know they turn around and resell it again and you get far less money that time the third time around it's even less and it just you know that number gets smaller and smaller and i think they're you know realizing that if they do go through the the steps to, to indie publish that and they do it properly you know they can make a lot more money in the long run Um, you know, and it, and it works better for them. And I think a lot of them are, are finally seeing those back titles as, you know, promotional material for whatever their latest novel is. Um, whereas in the past, you know, most traditionally published books, you know, they get that huge push at release. And then after that, they're just kind of gone and forgotten, you know, not only at the publisher or the bookstores, but also in the author's mind, they're already focused on their next one. But I think they're realizing, Hey, I've got 25 books out there that, you know, could be helping me sell my 26th. Um, and they're, they're making those uh, smart decisions.
3: Yeah. Yeah, interesting conversation. It was really great to have Barbara on, and I I felt like her experience as a journalist, really uh, gave her a different insight into novel writing and, uh, and her quote-unquote first novel. So she was a, a really lovely person and, and great to talk to. Uh, J.D., who do we have on deck for next week?
2: Next week we've got Blake Crouch coming back. He's the New York Times bestseller of, of multiple novels, including the Wayward Pines trilogy, uh, which was adopted, uh, adapted by Fox for television. His latest book is called Upgrade, and it releases July 12th.
3: Awesome. Definitely looking forward to having Blake back on. Hey, before we take you out today, I want to mention uh, an event from some of our friends over there at the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers. Uh, They are hosting the 2022 Colorado Gold Writers Conference. This takes place September 9th through 11th in Denver. Uh, They're drawing writers from the Rocky Mountains and beyond. Uh, This year's event, they're featuring keynotes from Chuck Wendig, who is a writer. Writer's Inc. alum and Catherine Center, as well as three days of programming in craft, marketing, and more by publishing professionals. Uh, so there's going to be networking opportunities galore, a chance to pitch an agent in person. Uh, that's happening this September, and they're they're saying, hey, it's a good time to lift up and lift off your writing career. So if you're interested, there'll be a link in the show notes, or you can go t- uh, you can register today or get more info at rmfw.org/conference-2022. That's it for this week. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.